Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. All right, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, Nico Perino, your host, broadcasting from our Washington, D.C. offices today, and I have two professors with me in the office, the authors of a relatively new book called Rap on Trial, Race, Lyrics, and Guilt in America, Professors Eric Nielsen and Professor Andrea Dennis. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. So Eric Nielsen is an associate professor of liberal arts at the University of Richmond. And what do you teach there? I teach uh, a a variety of courses, but African-American literature uh, and right now particularly uh, courses focused on hip-hop, hip-hop culture. Very good. And uh, Professor Dennis, you're at the University of Georgia Law School. What are you teaching there? Sure. My primary core courses are criminal law and evidence, but I also teach family law and juvenile law and sometimes criminal procedure. So we're in my office here in in Washington, D.C., and behind me I've got a a poster that I've had in my office for many years. Uh, It's banned in the USA. It's got a picture of Luther Campbell on it. Uh, He was in Two Life Crew, of course. And on the poster, it has the text of the First Amendment because Luther Campbell and two live crew uh, in the 80s and into the 90s often had trouble uh, with their albums. And there was one album in particular that was, what was it? It's called As, as Nasty, Nasty As, as They, they Want to Be. be. Yep. <laughs> yeah, 1989. Uh, they're in Florida. I think it was 1989, I right? I thought it was maybe 90 or 91, but I'm not sure. I remember being a kid buying Late it Late 80s, mother. early 90s is usually <laughs> yeah, okay. where yeah. I always group them. But in Florida, there were police departments that would tell record stores that they couldn't sell this album because it constituted uh, obscenity. And there was actually a, a trial court that did deem it obscenity. And thankfully, on appeal, it was, it was ruled not to be obscene. Of course, obscenity is excluded from First Amendment protections. What is obscenity has always been a challenge for the courts, but... They know it when they see it, so they say. (laughs) Well, in this case, I guess they thought they saw it until the appeal court... uh, Said otherwise. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, And he he went on to have uh, other First Amendment issues. Uh, There was a song that he had uh, based on Pretty Woman or Oh Pretty Mm -hmm. Woman. Yes. uh, Which kind of carved out or created the law around what is and is not parody and whether that gets First Amendment protection. So in my office here, I, I put this poster up as kind of an homage to all the work that Luther Campbell has done a pioneer for the First Amendment. But when we think about artistic expression and the stuff that was really challenged, we often think about obscenity. Uh, you can think about Lenny Bruce and his comedy. Um, you can think about Luther Campbell. You can think about the many books that have been forbidden from being distributed because they were obscene in one way or another. But you two write this book, Rap on Trial, which is really about a different problem that mm-hmm. artists have. Mm-hmm. So what is that problem? Well, Broadly speaking, broad, I know. Broadly speaking, um, it's, it's that uh, prosecutors, police and prosecutors are using one particular form uh, of art, and that's rap music, and they're using it as evidence of a whole host of uh, of crimes, all sorts of criminal activity. Um, this is, as we talk, we say in the book, uh, we do mention Luther Campbell, and we do talk about how the First Amendment 
has really been um, the, the First Amendment defense has been pretty ineffective when it comes to rap music. Uh, first, we see police targeting for obscenity. Um, now, now it's the true threats category um, that they're that they're prosecuting for, and then often using it just to show people's involvement in. Um, uh, like I said, a, a wide range of, of criminal activities. So it's not that they hear the album and they determine that there's some sort of crime just by the nature of the words themselves, right? It's that there is some sort of other crime that's being committed and they bring in the the art as evidence against both. So, yeah, I was going to say, so initially when we began to see these cases, it was that there had been or there was thought to have been some criminal activity committed uh, in public, uh, and that these lyrics were then evidence that affirmed the crime had been committed. Either they were a confession mm -hmm. or they were evidence of the individual's intent to commit the crime or motive or explained how the individual committed the crime. But what we have uh, begun to see in the last five years or so, I would say five to 10 years, is the lyrics themselves actually also constituting criminal activity. So threats? So threats. Threat. Okay. But also, I think it's important to keep in mind um, uh, Brandon Duncan and Aaron Harvey. I think that's this is what we think to be the new wave. So these were two uh, California men from San Diego who were um, prosecuted uh, for essentially benefiting a gang through their lyrics. Uh, there was no allegation, no uh, no evidence that they had actually committed any criminal conduct, that they supported the gang in committing any criminal conduct. That they were aware of in advance of any criminal activity whatsoever. Right. But the notion from the prosecutors was that their lyrics, which may have referenced individuals in the community, um, which may have referenced the gang, um, these were people that they grew up with that they knew, but that they didn't necessarily associate with. But those lyrics endorsed the gang, benefited the gang. And in turn, they also benefited from it. And so in that case, the lyrics themselves were the criminal act. Yeah. So how are you finding these cases? You said in the book you've, you've identified 500. It's probably pretty hard to find them as anyone who's tried to uh, research state criminal laws or, or yeah. state-based litigation, civil Very litigation. Uh, so how, how did you find these cases? How did this project begin? Well, okay. Uh, the way we find them is, I mean, once we've exhausted the obvious sources, Lexis, Westlaw, legal databases, uh, then it is often through our on-the-ground work. Um, I'm, I've, I've worked on 50 or 60 cases um, in various capacities from just consulting to actually testifying in court. And through th that work, that has then broadened our network of attorneys and, and other folks who, who, who let us know that this is happening. I mean, um, honestly, Google alerts are pretty helpful. Um, but, it, you know, the, the vast majority of cases are hard to identify because they're not reaching the Google alerts. They're not making it to the media and they're not making it to Westlaw or Lexis, um, often because there's a plea bargain, right? And that's one of the things that we're very concerned about is that police and prosecutors use the lyrics to compel a plea bargain. And so we're not going to see that case. We're not going to be able to find that. Or it could be in a grand jury proceeding, which is generally sealed. And so we've found five or so hundred cases, but that is only a, we're certain that's a small slice um, of the overall number of, of cases in which rap lyrics are being used uh, to put somebody away. Of course, the other problem we continue to have is that even if we could identify a particular time frame in which we're looking for cases, mm -hmm. cases continue to happen. And so we have to sort of periodically update our research. And so we can do Westlaw and Lexis 
searches, but yet we have to come back and do them again for the newly published cases um, that might uh, be in the database. And the same even for Google, we have to just sort of continually update what we have. What, what are some of the emblematic kinds of cases? Or is there an individual case that really stands out to you as being emblematic of the problem? Maybe we could each do one. I, uh, there, you know, The distinction to be made is that the majority of these cases are what you described and what Andrea was, t- was talking about, where the lyrics are used as evidence of a defendant's involvement in a crime, in some underlying crime. Mm-hmm. And then there's another subset of cases where it's the lyrics themselves that are the crime charged usually as terroristic threats, you know, true threats. You said, yeah, you said some post 9-11 laws have been used to justify these prosecutions. Yeah. And I think they're of questionable constitutionality, to be honest, because they're written so broadly, but they're also not used very often, or at least they weren't being used very often at first. Um, But um, I think the, the, an emblematic case for me, um, and this one had a a good ending, which is, um, you know, rare, is the, a case of uh, Vontae Skinner. This was a guy in New Jersey who was charged with, um, uh, I think it was attempted murder. Maybe it was, uh, he didn't, ki- the person he shot or was alleged to have shot didn't die. So I forget what the charge was. Um, but there was really no evidence. The, the conflicting eyewitness testimony, prosecutors really didn't have anything. And I believe, um, I don't. the facts of the case are a little hazy now. It's been a while, but I believe they the first time around, the jury was hung. Um, and so the next time around, prosecutors brought in, I think, 13 pages uh, of his rap lyrics that they had found in the back of a car. Uh, and these are lyrics that had been written months or years before the crime, made no mention of the actual crime itself or any of the people involved. But because prosecutors were permitted to read those lyrics in front of a jury, um, I would argue that that was the difference. And they came back and sentenced him to 30 years. Um, eventually, it went through the New Jersey uh, appeal. You know, the first it was the Superior and then the Supreme Court. And they did overturn that um, in a unanimous Supreme Court verdict. Uh, but that's the kind of case that we're talking about that is particularly frightening because now if you don't even have much evidence or any really real evidence, you can still convict on very serious crimes just by introducing these inflammatory lyrics uh, to a jury. And that's not supposed to be allowed though, right? Like it doesn't it prejudice the jurors and determine because these sort of character witness evidence sort of things are usually forbidden, right? I mean, you're the, you you worked as a public defender, uh, Professor Dennis, so right. you can probably speak to this. Yeah. So um, uh, generally, you're correct. And in fact, the New Jersey uh, Supreme Court ruled that it was unfairly prejudicial to admit the lyrics. Uh, so the evidence rules generally do prohibit character propensity evidence. So this notion that if you did something before, you've done it, you'll do it again. Or if you're of this particular character, that means you'll always engage in that type of conduct. Um, so generally the evidence rules prohibit that. But there's a um, a workaround, which is if you can offer the same type of evidence, but for a non-character purpose. So for example, if you have maybe dealt drugs in the past, that might indicate you have some knowledge about drugs or how to deal drugs, right? Uh, And so there is a workaround for this prohibition on character evidence. And so that is often what prosecutors uh, will do. And 
because the ability of the court to exclude it is within their discretion. They don't have to exclude the evidence, even if they think it's unfairly prejudicial. Um, on balance, most courts will admit the evidence, um, uh, even if there is some concern about unfair prejudice. Maybe they'll try and tell the jury, well, don't use it for that um, character-based reasoning that we prohibit. Use it for this other purpose. But once the, the, the elephant's in the room, right, once you cho- choose your metaphor, once the, the cat's, out, cat's, of the cat's out of the bag, <laughs> right, the, right, the horse is out of the barn. But uh-huh. the, the point is, jurors have heard this evidence. Um, and so uh, there, we have significant concerns about it being unfairly prejudicial. But the ability to exclude is within a judge's discretion. And there are also cases where the defense introduced character testimony, for example. There was one case in your book, I remember, where the defense decided to put the defendant on the stand. And uh, this defendant talked about himself and his character, and that allowed the the prosecution to then introduce. Yes. Yes. So this is the, uh, it is rare, right, that the government is allowed to just offer character evidence. Um, uh, One one exception is when the defendant so-called opens the door. So in the case you're referencing, the defendant gets on the stand um, uh, and testifies, well, I'm a peaceful guy. I couldn't have committed that uh, violent crime. Um, Then that permits the government to rebut his character evidence. Uh, And in the instance you're talking about, the government rebutted it by offering lyrics that the defendant had written. That case in particular really felt like a trap. I mean, and it opened my eyes because I'm, you know, I'm not an attorney and I'm not mm-hmm. aware of these sort of nuances. But this was a case where it, there was surveillance footage of his, I think it was a stabbing maybe. And, but, and he claimed self-defense. And he claimed self-defense. And so if you're going to claim self-defense, it seems vital that you take the stand, um, especially in a case like that. But in that moment, that, that, that became a trap because if he said, yeah, normally a peaceful guy – all of a sudden they were allowed to bring in all kinds of character evidence that otherwise they would not have been able to. But then my question is, is how do you mount a legitimate defense um, if those are the rules? Um, that seems um, it, deeply unfair. Well, I, I think also the concern is why is there this assumption or conclusion that penned rap lyrics are evidence of a violent character? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so let's talk a little bit about the lyrics. Often these lyrics involve violence, uh, drugs. I mean, I, but it's not, it, it's not necessarily unique to rap music. I grew up in a heavy metal band and there's like some of the most popular yes. bands and in, involve the names literally involve violence. I'm thinking Cannibal Corpse, for example. Yeah. Uh, Same with punk, you know, a lot of all kinds of the similar themes. You but know. you're not finding this sort of phenomenon happening with other music, no. correct? No. And that's why you say in the title, rap on trial, because it's literally this type of music that seems to be Correct. on trial. What are what are the some of the, the factors that go into your thinking on that? I mean, what is As the research? To why? Yeah. I mean you've you've you cite in the book a couple of studies where yeah. you've because country music is often right. very is, violent. Is often very yeah. violent. And you you cite Johnny Cash in Folsom Prison. I shot a man just to watch him die. Right. Uh, well, that, now, I think that question really gets to the heart of why we wrote the book and, and what's going on here. I mean, what, there, there are a number, I think, of explanations. I think, you know, the, you mentioned the, some research that we include in the book, and the research really does show that uh, rap um, tends to prime all kinds of stereotypes uh, about young black um, or Hispanic men, um, and that rap, and it's unique to rap. So in one study that we cite, uh, the researcher gave... Um, separated people into two groups, gave one group um, uh, some generic lyrics, no indication about the artist or genre, um, and told that group that those lyrics came from a country song. 
took the exact same lyrics, gave them to the other group and said, these came from a rap song. Same lyrics, no indication of genre, and then got the results back. And what she found was that the people who believed that the music came from rap were significantly um, more likely to think of it as threatening, in need of regulation. You know, that study was conducted 20 years ago, uh, but it's been replicated recently with the same results. And what a lot of these researchers and what we see is that there's something very, the, the racial dimension of this is front and center. Uh, that's, that's, in my mind, what's going on here and the people's inability to understand the conventions, but even to understand these young men as artists in the first place. Yeah. And in the book, I, I, you have this great line. You say, this isn't a First Amendment issue with a racial component. This is a racial comp- uh, racial issue with a First Amendment component, right? right? Right. And so I think, right, building upon um, the studies that Eric was uh, describing, um, let's not forget, right, that criminal justice is significantly focused on hyper-policing of Black and Latino communities. And so if your target population right, is Black and Latino, what you're going to look for is evidence that supports your stories you want to tell about criminality, your theories of criminality, right, your evidence. Uh, and so um, when you bring those two together, what you have is essentially a, a practice that is highly racialized um, and that amplifies an already hyper-focused criminal justice system. Yeah, I should, I should ask, because I'm sure there are a lot of listeners out there who are wondering, well, can these sort of lyrics tell us anything about a defendant? Like, is there no situation in which we think it's valid to introduce them into a case? I know in the book, you talk about a probative value and prejudicial impact, different kinds of evidence. So, and you also in the book say that not everyone who you're talking about may be innocent. Right. So, you know, what, how should we think about how these could be used if they can be used at all? So one thing, let me comment on the the probative value, which is essentially um, one of the factors to determine whether or not any piece of evidence of any sort is relevant in a case. Uh, That's a pretty low standard. Um, The definition is basically any tendency to help establish a fact. So any tendency, almost anything in the world has some tendency to establish another fact. And it may directly establish it or circumstantially or by inference. And so that basic relevance threshold is pretty easy to overcome. So I think it's probably fair to say, look, if we're applying that basic relevance standard, then most pieces of evidence can overcome that standard. In fact, I tell my students when I teach them evidence, if you can't surpass relevance, it's because you're not thinking creatively enough about the arguments you're making. Right. Right. So it's like the rational basis test in other contexts. Yes. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Absolutely right. If you cannot, if you cannot offer some rational or reasonable basis for this legislation, then you're just not. Working hard enough. You're not working hard enough. Um, But the problem, though, is that even if you overcome relevance, there are a host of rules, some of which we've touched on, Mm -hmm. um, which would exclude um, evidence potentially. So character concerns Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, can potentially exclude evidence, uh, evidence that is unfairly prejudicial. Uh, And so um, to your question about, well, is there a particular instance in which you think the lyrics should be admitted? Eric and I have gone back and forth about this. And you talk about it a little at the end of the book, you offer solutions and right. you know potential ways of thinking about this. And it's, you know, it's, it, it, we go back and forth uh, on it because it is sort of where you're dealing with both theory and practice. And I suppose if you've ever seen the Key and Peele sketch that involves rap lyrics as evidence, I would say in that case, Maybe we admit the lyrics. I, I encourage your <laughs> listeners to check it out on YouTube. It's hilarious. And I was laughing super hard as Darnell was dying. The name of the album 
is I killed Darnell Simmons. It's a concept album. A concept? That's a picture of you. A picture of you. And behind you is Darnell Simmons' body. But I guess my problem is, based on my my work in the courts and with attorneys and with these defendants and and, and dealing with police, what I see is such an uh, overwhelming misunderstanding and misrepresentation of the genre that I really don't trust um, our judicial system's ability to introduce lyrics, even in cases where theoretically you might think they're relevant. I don't trust them to do so responsibly and to limit um, what they're introducing to these outlier situations. The reality is, in the cases I've worked on, I haven't really found any cases where people are just rapping word for, you know, what they, actual crimes that they committed, Mm -hmm. one after the other after the other. Obviously, rap contains, like with any fictional form, there contains, you know, grains of reality, but trying to sift through that and determine what might be real and what might not be is not something that police and prosecutors, judges and juries are good at. And so what I worry is that you open the door a little, you open it all the way, and you allow juries to make irrational decisions. And so it's hard for me to imagine a situation where it is really useful. I mean, the other question is, what is probative? Uh, What's probative about something, uh, a fictional form that is told in rhymed form from the perspective of a made-up narrator that by its conventions emphasizes exaggeration, wordplay? How is that probative um, if it presents itself as false, as fiction. That to me is is a challenge. That And the way that police overcome it is they just deny that. They say, I have worked on cases where police will say or prosecutors will say rap lyrics should be understood as autobiographical confessions. That's hmm. not true, but that's how you get around the how is this useful question. Yeah, well, when these are presented in trials, are they presented, you said you mentioned context before, like are they, are they presented as rhyme or is it just text on a, are they just simply read out? I'll, I'll say. It's, a, it's a variety of uh, approaches. So um, sometimes you will have just the government's agent reading the lyrics into the record with whatever cadence or lack of cadence or flat affect or whatever have you. Yeah. Um, uh, but that would include, you know, if there's any rhyme there. Um, sometimes the lyrics are given hard copy. Um, into the record, and so it's just on paper. And often terribly transcribed, full of inaccuracies. Yeah. Right. It's unclear who's transcribing them and what their qualifications are and the quality of the transcription. Sometimes um, uh, audio may be played in court. Certainly Uh, videos. mm -hmm. Um, Those are particularly um, useful for prosecutors because they also help undo visual images. So if you see the defendant sitting there in a coat and tie – um, if you can show anybody a picture of him, you know, with gold teeth, tattoos, and maybe even holding a gun or smoking marijuana, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that goes a long way to undoing all of his work to appear sort of respectable in that, in that situation. Right. And sometimes you'll get even this, the summary. Someone overheard someone supposedly rapping a line and they'll sort of give a summary of it or mm-hmm. this is a summary of a conversation. Yeah. When, when the reason I asked that question is because I made a – 
uh, helped make a documentary called Can We Take a Joke, which is in part about Lenny Bruce and the obscenity prosecutions in, in the late 60s. And uh, you know, he fired a lot of his attorneys. Uh, he represented himself. He made a lot of mistakes. But one of the things he begged judges to do was to let him do his routines. Uh, just begged them to do it because he could not stand hearing these prosecutors read out his jokes oh, because often right. it, it, the jokes don't land or the jokes don't make sense right. because they have a rhyme to them or they you, you're not you're not hitting the uh, final note right. You're not hitting the punchline right and. Uh, so, you know that 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 might have killed him as much as the overdose. Just right. having to go through that every right. day and seeing his art butchered by these prosecutors. Yeah. Oh, and it does happen. You know, I I I think that they're they're probably imprecise um, analogies. But to go to your question about the probative value of it all, you know, one of the one of the questions I always ask is, okay. Why is it very difficult? I, I know it depends on jurisdiction. It depends on the circumstances. But it's very difficult, for example, to introduce polygraph um, results. Um, now, our national security agencies use them. Um, so clearly, a, a number of informed people have determined that they are at least fairly reliable, reliable enough to be screening our national security personnel. But we don't allow them or it's difficult to bring stuff like that in because of the chance, the percent that is not going to be reliable. If we understand that, how in the world are you bringing in rap lyrics that are clearly exaggerated, told from a made-up perspective, you know, from an invented narrator? How do we allow that? Um, where wh That sounds to me like a bit of a double standard. Um, and we also know that sometimes, even if it's probative, we still probably shouldn't let it in. That's what, you know, rape shield laws are an example of because, you know, somebody's past sexual history probably is at the very low standard relevant, um, but we understand that that information should not necessarily come in because it can cause a jury to behave irrationally. How is this different? Yeah, and juries often behave irrationally, right? Despite instructions not to do so. I mean, what <laughs> <laughs> humans behave irrationally despite. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, one of the things that I was thinking about, um, a hypothetical I was thinking about uh, in reading this book, outside the context of rap, was um, Alice in Wonderland, written by Lewis Carroll. Um, Evidence suggests these days that um, Lewis Carroll had a relationship with a minor, a child named named Alice. There, there's been discovered, I guess, uh, a picture that he took of her, uh, nude or semi-nude. Hey everyone, Nico here with a quick editor's note. The photo I'm referencing in this section is not actually a photo of Alice Little. Rather, it's a photo of Alice's elder sister, Lorena Little. That's not to say that Lewis Carroll didn't take any weird photos with Alice either. He did. There's one of him, for example, kissing Alice Little. But the photo of the child in the nude or semi-nude is of Alice's elder sister, Lorena. I learned about this from a BBC documentary that was put out in 2015 called The Secret World of Lewis Carroll. So if you're interested in learning more about Lewis Carroll, the little children, and these photographs, I recommend you go and check that documentary out. And so I'm trying to, I was thinking when I was, I was reading this book, I was like, so what would we do with Alice in Wonderland if there was a prosecution in his time because the picture was discovered or there was a relationship discovered? Would Alice in Wonderland be admitted as evidence that he had some sort of fixation on, on this young girl? I don't know, but I, you know, I have to think maybe I'd... I could see someone trying it. 
But I don't see it working. I don't. I don't even think it gets past the first judge, right? I mean, ultimately on appeal, I think it's even less likely to stand. I mean, we do have well, that so, crime fiction example. Yes, yeah. but the other the other question um, we might have to ask is what is is C. S. Lewis uh, in in um, Lewis Carroll? Is, is Lewis Carroll? Sorry. Yeah, I believe it's Lewis Carroll. <laughs> sorry, sorry, C. S. Lewis. <laughs> Lewis Carroll, not C. S. Plenty of violence Lewis. in there too. Um, uh, Unicorns. Yeah, I apologize for that uh, profusely. No defamation intended. But so. Um, right. He's dead. The, the question is, <laughs> right, uh, is he, as the defendant, a celebrity author, a well-known author? Because one of the concerns we have oh, yeah. is yep. that Let's fame and celebrity uh, is impactful here as well. So the example we talk about in the book is, um, was actually a little bit comical. Uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts is, uh, during oral arguments in a Supreme Court case, quoting uh, Eminem, uh, um, essentially um, uh, threatening to kill or having killed his uh, ex-wife, and uh, whom he names by name. Right, he specifically identifies Kim, uh, and the uh, solicitor uh, responding that well, Eminem um, would not be considered to have been making a threat because he was performing um, that that song and that lyric, and uh, it was for entertainment value. What, what about the what about the language at? Pages 54 to 55 of the petitioner's brief. Uh, you know, Adam, make a nice med for, bed for mommy at the bottom of the lake, tie a rope around a rock. This is during the context of a domestic dispute uh, uh, between uh, you know, a husband and wife. There goes mama splashing in the water, no more fighting with dad, you know, uh, all that stuff. Now, so under your test, could that be prosecuted? No, because if you look at the context of these statements... Because Eminem said it instead of somebody else? Because Eminem said it at a concert where people are going to be entertained. Because you, had, there's, you also talk about a case in Pittsburgh in which yes. uh, some amateur artists yes. identify police officers but are, have, ha, were found to have made a true threat, right? Yes. yes. True Jamal. threat in quotation marks because it's hard. Yeah, even that's... Right. Yeah, very murky. Yes. Uh, right. Uh, Jamal Knox and Rasheed Beasley... Um, Knox was the one who, you know, took it through the Pennsylvania court system and then eventually, you know, sought uh, cert, but the Supreme Court didn't get it. Yeah. Um, but that was, you know, that's a really good example because A, what you see in a lot of these cases is that the amateurs, amateur artists we're talking about are imitating far more well-known artists. Often, you know, so Fuck the Police, which was the name of Jamal Knox's song in which he identified a couple of police officers, that, of course, is NWA. A, 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 you know, an iconic protest song, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, so already they're sort of channeling these more, uh, you know, more famous uh, artists. Um, but at the same time, we have examples of well-known artists who have, in their lyrics, named police officers in their community and said, I am going to go kill that police officer. Ice Cube did it after the Rodney King beatings uh, or beating. I don't know, multiple. I don't even now. It just sounds insensitive. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you get my point. Yeah. Um, there, you, there are, there are multiple uh, Eminem with Kim, right? All sorts of examples where you could, we're seeing a double standard based upon the, um, the level of fame, success, and probably wealth um, yeah, I was going to say, is this and, a problem of too. just having better attorneys or not good enough attorneys or being able to afford, uh, you know, robust legal representation? Right. Or the assumption that if you are uh, famous and have made it, you must be really adhering to artistic conventions of adopting an alter ego and a persona, mm-hmm. um, whereas amateur artists, they must just be depicting their real life 
experiences. Yeah, police have said it's much. Uh, I think we quote one from Newport News who said, these aren't the brightest guys. Um, it's much easier for them to just write down stuff that they did than like be creative. Um, and that is what I think the mindset frequently is, particularly among these gang police, um, that what they're, what they're actually watching, because they spend all day in front of the computer uh, instead of going out in the communities, what they, they actually start to believe that they are hearing all kinds of confessions to true crime that's happening um, all around them. Um, so for, for, for Lewis Carroll, I would say, I don't know, maybe right. they might try. <laughs> I don't think But we would ask for parody, right? right? Right. That we would ask for parody on the side of do not admit fictional writings against anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Plus, if you've that, and I guess that's the whole thing. If you've got the picture the, of the naked girl, that seems good uh, as far as, uh, that seems good as evidence. So what do we need his his book for? Uh, it, you know, maybe f- look for other example, actual evidence to support the idea that this guy is a pedophile or whatever he's being charged with. But bringing in fictional creations is highly problematic because that the fact that he may have led a life that was somehow similar to something that occurs in his book does not seem like an adequate justification for bringing for cherry picking examples from the book. So, which um, leads to something I think is important to think about here, which is in a case in which the government has uh, large amounts of other evidence, the question would be, well, why do you need this fictional art form, right, to tip the balance? Um, And so we would suggest you err on the side of excluding the evidence. If you have significant other evidence to reach your burden, you don't need to pile on this other unreliable evidence. And if you don't, and if you don't, if you have a case in which you have no evidence um, or very little evidence or questionable evidence, then it seems um, patently unfair to tip the balance using evidence that is um, highly unreliable, that is inflammatory, that is unfairly prejudicial. That seems problematic. Yeah, you shouldn't be trying the case in the first At place. All. Correct. Correct. And so for those cases in between, we have significant concerns about the implicit bias, the stereotyping, um, the uh, unreliability, the the difficulty untangling truth from any semblance of reality. Well, what might the First Amendment, we talk about this a little bit in the book, say about evidence being introduced? You know, does the First Amendment prohibit this sort of I don't we, know. What would you even call it? Viewpoint? Is it? Is it I don't know. I think mean, it should say a lot. <laughs> it does right now it says nothing as interpreted. That's why when, when, when you see these cases starting that we're working to bring these to higher levels, like to bring cases to the Supreme Court, you see those center around threats cases because that's an example mm-hmm. of where the First Amendment is obviously operating. Um, the question is, you know, I, I think a lot of people would argue that in the vast majority of cases where you're not actually punishing the words, you're not punishing speech, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're allowed to introduce speech as evidence. Um, and so you're not directly um, preventing somebody from, you know, making, you know, making these, these, these right. records. And the related but, argument is you're punishing the underlying conduct. You're not punishing the speech. But the chilling effect is undeniable. Um, it is very difficult to imagine that if you are systematically prosecuting people for poetry, I mean, whether it's good poetry, bad poetry, we can all disagree, but it's poetry. If you're doing that, when are these artists going to realize that it is not okay to make this poetry? I mean, we're already, there. Are, we do have isolated examples of people who've said after they've been prosecuted, yeah, I still make rap, I'm steering clear of the violent stuff. Um, probably a wise decision, but in a, a, a hugely unfortunate one that he would have to make an artistic decision like that based upon um, this use of, of lyrics as art, as evidence 
confidence. Um, and we're also seeing disclaimers in videos now, right? Once again, probably a smart, a savvy move, right? Everything here is a prop. But if you think about rap music, just as the way you think about wrestling or maybe some other um, other forms of entertainment, you know, should they have, you know, the suspension of disbelief you want while you listen to believe in the authenticity of it, should they have to at the beginning say, totally making this all up before they begin? I have questions about that artistically. Sometimes when I when I talk to people about free expression, and you know, they accuse me of being First Amendment absolutist, they say, "Well, you wouldn't you wouldn't advocate that the the First Amendment should apply in courtrooms? That there shouldn't be any rule of evidence that you can say whatever you want in courtrooms?" So you know, part of me is asking the question, just kind of to understand where strong free expression advocates would like to go with these sorts of things, because it, it seems to me that if there is this sort of issue with artistic expression being introduced in court as evidence of someone's guilt, that there might be an organization like the ACLU or someone who would bring test cases to try and prevent that from happening under on First Amendment grounds. Well, yeah, the first the ACLU has been um, now. I, I work with I've worked with the ACLU with some. Uh, I'm working with a local uh, the um, Tennessee affiliate right now, and um, and and the New Jersey affiliate has worked on the Avante Skinner mm-hmm. case, the case I mentioned. Um, but the ACLU has actually been strangely, as a, especially at the national level, has been strangely silent on it. I mean, I think one thing you see is that a lot of First Amendment purists are really not that interested in the racial dimension of the work that they're doing. And I feel that, unfortunately, the ACLU has fallen into that trap. I think they're trying to address that. But, you know, the problem is that I think they're still caught a little flat-footed by this because they keep making the same First Amendment arguments over and over, and they don't work. You know, even in the New Jersey case, yeah, he won, but he didn't win because of the ACLU's First Amendment argument. The justices just ignored that. Mm -hmm. The First Amendment, the, the traditional slippery slope, chilling effect, whatever the traditional arguments are, don't work. So you would argue it like, like a, a disparate effect, sort I was of. Say, it's yeah, not I was kind of like it. you've seen would be successful in uh, um, civil asset forfeiture. Mm-hmm. You know, you've seen some yes. of that work in Texas, for example, where the the disparate racial effects yes. of it were, were able to strike down some of these laws. Well, and this is why it's important to come back to an earlier part of our conversation that we are not finding cases involving other musical art forms, which are predominated by uh, white artists or white uh, entertainers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right, the disparate, the disparate impact, the disparate effect, um, that um, what is happening here is that it is the First Amendment rights of a particular class of individuals that are being burdened uh, in comparison comparison to others. And I would argue that we've already collected enough data to begin to make that argument, you know, mm-hmm. because often these dis- disparate impact cases, it's all about, it's often about data collection. Well, the and social science research on its own, I mean, is, is compelling to is me. Compelling. But yeah, seeing but the, the cases numbers themselves. Also, the imper- yeah, yeah. The, the, the cases themselves, the numbers, uh, I, I really do think that those are the kind. so that's a, a really good example of a strategy that I don't think the ACLU is necessarily equipped. I mean, maybe they're equipped, but they haven't shown evidence of that. Um, But I do think that would be a a more productive avenue than the same tired old First Amendment argument, as much as I agree with it totally. It's just not working here because there's some the, the racial element of this is powerful. And so like if, if one of these cases ever goes to the Supreme Court, you know, when we tried with Knox, I'm, I'm afraid Right, because in some ways, I think this court is good on speech, um, for sure. Um, but on the other hand, when it when it comes to race, 
I'm not sure how all of these justices are going to come down. I mean, Alito in that in the Alanis case. I wanted to talk 14, about Alanis, but that involved a white guy. It, right? it involved a white guy. Um, but but you know what what Alito said. You know, the fact that it's a white person, I think doesn't totally erase the racial dimension of it. Mm -hmm. Everybody understands that it's a white person who is engaging in a black or a predominantly black art form. You know, I think that has its own sort of issues among the white community, right? You're selling out or you're- Yeah, we should kind of, we should maybe summarize the case quickly for our listeners. Yeah, so this guy, do you want to do it or do you want me to do it? it. Yeah, this guy, um, Anthony Alanis, uh, he was getting in the middle of a divorce. Uh, He may have been divorced at the time, but he started putting things up on Facebook um, sometimes it, it, threatening sounding language. Now he didn't tag his ex-wife. He didn't, you know, sort of uh-huh. actually identify. He didn't, yeah, tag her. So he wasn't intending for her to necessarily see it. Um, but it was public, so she could. Um, and he was saying threatening things, but he was often couching those threatening things in um, in the form of rap lyrics, specifically Eminem lyrics. Um, and he was including in some of these posts, a lot of these posts, all the standard caveats that you'd expect. I'm pushing the limits of free speech. I'm doing this. So he was invoking all of that. Um, he was, um, you know, when he was doing it involving his, when he was targeting his wife with this, or at least mentioning his wife with this, nothing. But when he, when the FBI intervened and then he started going after a police officer, uh, an FBI agent, um, then they took him to, to court um, and they charged him uh, with making threats and he was incarcerated. Yeah, he was found guilty and incarcerated. And then that case ultimately went to the Supreme Court because it, as it turns out, true threats is a totally messy um, area yeah, of First Amendment book, ju- yeah. jurisprudence. And, so, and even now, because the first Supreme Court rulings only apply to the federal courts, mm-hmm. some courts say, yeah, if a reasonable person perceives it as a threat, uh, it counts. Uh, if others say you have to have intent. And so that's what this case was all about. And so the Supreme Court did ultimately rule, and I think in a re- rational way, but not a First Amendment way, yet my point again. Right. So just to be clear, yeah. not in a First Amendment way, because they were interpreting the, statute. Um, the federal uh, threat statute. And so what it me- meant to issue a threat to another individual and how you evaluate that. Yes. So, so they didn't strike down the statute on First Amendment grounds, which... Correct. They no. completely, they avoid, they avoided the First Amendment issue, which is what courts will will do if they have... Um, uh, and, that, and the case was tried using the federal threat statute? It wasn't a state? It was, it was federal. federal. It was federal. Gotcha. Yeah, it was federal because, uh, I mean, probably because... They just the said it, they, they punted essentially and said that you yes, interpreted it wrong. That is correct. That is, you interpreted the statute incorrectly. But throughout, but the, the, the oral arguments in that case were somewhat revealing because what you saw on the one hand was somebody like Justice Roberts who had a... I thought a, a a very good grasp of the issues, and surprisingly, yeah, right? he quoted Bonnie and Clyde yes, or something. Bonnie yeah, he did. <laughs> yes. But you also could hear the the Alito type criticism that I wonder, you know, who does it does that does that extend to the Gorsuches and the Kavanaughs and whatever? Where he's like, is this speech is this speech or art even worth protecting in the first place? And he didn't couch it in racial terms, but it's hard to. I worry about if this goes up. Which side of that wins? Are they actually speech purists? Um, especially if you're targeting a police officer. Uh-huh. I don't know how this court goes, but I, I'm You might worried. get Gorsuch on it, I think. But So one of the right. things we have tried to do is educate attorneys who have approached us about their cases that um, they should at least raise the First Amendment issue. I think probably there have been long a tendency not to raise the First Amendment issue because the law seems pretty clearly settled that the First Amendment doesn't um, prevent the use of lyrics as evidence, at least mm-hmm. as the 
First Amendment is now interpreted. And so we've had to encourage attorneys to at least raise that argument so that we can at least begin to make the inroads um, to raise the issue. There is a case um, uh, that we don't talk about uh, uh, in the book. Uh, It's a Mississippi case, uh, a high school student uh, named Taylor Bell who um, uh, was an aspiring rap artist, um, was working a lot on his own to develop his craft and to record lyrics. uh, And he's on a winter break um, and he records a song um, allegedly threatening some teachers at the school because some of his female classmates had told him that uh, some teachers and coaches had been sexually harassing the girls. uh, And he was quite upset about it and the fact that the administration wasn't doing anything about this. And so he wrote a song in his own time, uh, using his own resources. Um, never he performed it at school. Never performed it at school. He published it to the internet. but Like SoundCloud or something, yeah. yeah yes, but YouTube. did not um, uh, direct it at the school or anything. Um, they eventually go back to school off of their winter break. Actually, I think it was a might have been even a snow break, mm-hmm. um, oddly enough. And um, uh, somehow uh, one of the teachers or coaches who had uh, been the subject of the song hears about this and then brings it to the administration. So there hadn't been any um, disruption to the school setting. None of the kids were saying anything or doing anything. Uh, but ultimately, he's suspended for the remainder of the semester and has to go to alternative school um, on the basis of these lyrics allegedly being threatening. Mm. Uh, and he pursued it through the uh administrative level and then through the federal courts. Um, he almost prevailed. Um, he uh, had a ruling from, I guess they're the Fifth Circuit, right, uh, in his favor, but uh, on banc, they reconsidered oh. uh, and reversed it. But that was a good case, a good opportunity yes. for the Supreme Court. They did petition the Supreme Court, which refused to take the case. Um, but that was a good opportunity to consider both you know, schoolhouse issues in terms of First Amendment, um, but also this rap That lyrics. worries me because since Tinker, it <laughs> yes. hasn't gone very well for well, us. Well, so, yeah. So on the one hand, we're thinking this is, this, is a, this is an ideal case, right? It seems right. But on the other hand, I, I teach juvenile law, so I don't want bad, yeah. uh, I don't want bad schoolhouse uh, uh, decisions. But that was the kind of case that really could have... I mean, I, I absolutely it. agree. I mean, it was it was clearly intended to address... Uh, a real problem. It's 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 political speech. I mean, and, you know that was what what was infuriating about the Jamal Knox case, that Pennsylvania, the Pittsburgh case that we mentioned, that True Threats case, was the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's finding that there was nothing, there was no social or political commentary in it. And I'm thinking they they it's called fuck the police. Um, it is channel <laughs> it is it is channeling the most iconic protest song in rap music. Um, or certainly one of them, yeah. um, how is there not social or political commentary there? And then you listen to the lyrics, and there very clearly is. You're harassing our communities. And, and, they, and I know they went Especially on Especially when you look at the Bong Hits for Jesus case, in which the court tried to bend over backwards yes. to find some sort of commentary there. And the only reason they didn't find it is because the, the person who made the sign essentially said, so, I had I, no... Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But being I, a stupid teenage they, boy, yeah. right? But they, they had, I'm sure they had to do that because they understand that political speech should be you know, uh, protected, you know, is particularly protected. And so you negate all of that if you just say there isn't any social or political commentary. But that was an absolutely absurd thing to say. It it, it doesn't even seem, um, you know, it doesn't seem, it seems disingenuous. Well, I can't even decide, though, if Bell is slightly worse, because throughout his administrative appeals and maybe even into the lower court decisions, they recognized that Bell had, right, um, uh, 
through his lyrics, right, um, expressed social commentary and political um, discord. Um, and they said, oh, but it was threatening and this is the schoolhouse. So they both recognized that this was a potentially serious concern about sexual harassment and assault of uh, high school girls. And he's commenting about it and trying to attract attention but we'll put that to the side. Yeah. So I don't know which is worse, either outright denial or yeah. we recognize it, but, but we're not going to do anything. Yep, that's fair. So I'm, we're at about 45 minutes now. I want to talk solutions. We, You kind of tipped your hat to one there, which is the lawyers who are trying these cases, who are working on these cases, I should say, they, they need to know what issues to present. Are there certain issues that they should present? What are some of the other solutions? That, and in particular, I ask you because you you have a whole chapter here at the end of the book. Um, you've written about this before. Right. So I do think um, one of what um, we're pretty proud of trying to do is address solutions to a variety of different um, individuals, to citizens, to judges, to lawyers, and to legislators. And um, I think uh, apropos of this being a First Amendment uh uh, podcast, um, one of the recommendations we have is for a, a an expressive speech privilege that would be um, embedded in the evidence rules. So as we talked about, there are all sorts of um, policy reasons why um, there might be a particular type of evidence that is relevant, but we otherwise exclude it because we think there's a particular danger or because we want to advance some social policy. And here we would say, right, we think that Lyrics should not at all be admissible, even if they are technically relevant or survive other evidence rule scrutiny because of social policy, which is the protection of free speech, which is not chilling um, speech. And so there are other circumstances uh, in the evidence rules where we also make that kind of a social policy choice. So we protect attorney-client communications. We protect therapist-patient yeah. communications. We protect spousal communications. Was this the thing in your chapter where you talked about how this would require bringing an expert witness to witnesses to determine what actually constitutes rap lyrics and not some other sort of just lines on a page? Well, so that's also another um, concern we have, which is that judges should be quite uh, careful in their scrutiny of what experts are permitted to testify about lyrics, if any. Um, right now, what's happening is you just have regular law enforcement officers with some additional training that is of questionable value or, being deemed experts um, and yeah. permitted to opine on the lyrics. And so we think- In farcical right. fashion, many cases. I mean, demonstrably wrong. Um, I mean, I worked on a case once where they pulled a picture off this guy's phone and, and, and they saw the picture and they identified someone in the picture as a gang member. It was actually the notorious B.I.G. Um, standing next to another rapper, Craig Mack. I mean, that's the level of, it, it, there's no clue. There's yeah. zero clue. And well, so I'm, I'm even worried, is a problem. I'm even worried about that because art often pushes limits and art is often not recognized as art when it's first introduced, even though it might later be seen as revolutionary. I'm thinking of you know, just a painting of a Campbell soup can, for example. Mm -hmm. right. you know, it's <laughs> like, you know, when that's first introduced, if you're trying to determine whether that was expressive, um, you know, I don't know, <laughs> not that there's any controversy surrounding it outside of the art community, yeah. but... You know? Yeah, but we do think judges should do a much better job of um, demanding uh, rigorous credentials for so-called experts. Mm -hmm. We think, obviously, we think Eric has <laughs> those uh, uh, rigorous credentials. Um, so that would be another proposal that in this one would be um, focused on judges. Mm -hmm. um, what about jurors? 
jurors. You go, you take the juror. I'm, I mean, you you know that that gets into jury, you know, nullification. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that um, you if you're, you're sounding very libertarian. I, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I Professor mean, I, Nielsen. Well, you are. I mean, uh, I mean, to my understanding, again, as a non-lawyer, non-law professor, um, you are jury nullification. It has been found to be con- is, is permitted. Um, and you just can't talk about it. Right? Talk about it. It's not enforced, you can't talk right? about it. But if you do it without mentioning yes, it, yes, that yes. you can. And, and you know, you see it. It's not uncommon. You know, that's one of the reasons why marijuana legislation um, has changed so dramatically. Is that people on juries just decided that yes, I know it's against the law, but no, I'm not going to vote to convict. And so the people don't bring those well, cases. I mean, our, our our free speech culture was essentially created here in America through jury nullification. The John Peter Zanger case, in which that you know the Clearly, uh, Zanger was clearly uh, guilty of seditious libel, but they just said this is a bullshit law, so we're not going to convict. Yeah, and you know now, now that Louisiana has finally come correct, I guess we still have Oregon, but I mean, basically, you need a unanimous jury verdict uh, to convict somebody, and that that what that does is places a lot of power in the hands of it, one individual juror. And so if this book reaches one person who gets on a jury and sees the prosecution using rap lyrics as evidence, you know, we suggest that if they are so inclined that they consider, you know, maybe just not just not considering that evidence in their decision. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, if you're really serious about it, you know, just acquit because the prosecution brought that in. That's a very personal decision because you know, a lot of these are very serious crimes. And again, we're not asserting the innocence You're never going to get on a jury. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the idea. <laughs> uh, that's true. But, but uh, that, that is one of the things, you know, it's one of those moments where in a big legal system that's Byzantine, that is expensive, that is difficult, that is inaccessible, that's one concrete example of where individuals wield a lot of power. And so this is one place where we think that they could, in fact, wield it uh, with, with real, real success. Yeah. And I think a lot of people... When they think about these crimes and the allegations, they're just biased from the get-go because the crimes are so horrendous and everyone wants justice. But the system is very libertarian in the sense is that it it does everything it can to get to the facts of the matter. Uh, It excludes evidence for good reasons. You need to have a unanimous um, jury to convict. Um, So you know it's important to consider what this these sort of lyrics being introduced might do to prejudice a jury or to bias a jury. As, as we've seen with the social science research, people can't help or don't care to, to help um, draw certain conclusions about people who, who work, and work, on, uh, work in the rap industry or write these lyrics or are even interested in it. Because you've seen cases, right? Uh, you talk about some cases in the book of people just listening to the music being prejudicial in any given case, right? Right. Yes. And and it's surprising that in many of these cases, prosecutors aren't even asked to and, and don't establish even authorship. Right, so in a lot of cases, it's they don't they don't necess- they don't do the hard work of even showing that it's this guy's voice and that he penned those lyrics. Because what if his friend wrote the lyrics? Which is you know that's what, that's what, how many songs are written. They're either ghost written or written by somebody else. Well, that which should complicate things if he didn't write it. But they're, they're not even doing that basic groundwork. And, and even if they do, they're willing to accept that association with the artist. So it's if you or right, if you're yeah. in the video with the artist, or um, if you are not the author of the lyrics, but you actually perform the lyrics, then, right, you have now um, endorsed the content of uh, the lyrics. You have um, uh, accepted those words as your own. Imagine applying that to Hollywood. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> yeah, well, 
I'm going to leave it. This is fascinating stuff. And I've been doing this podcast for three and a half years. I've been working in the First Amendment space for many years beyond that. And I had passing knowledge of this issue, especially when Alanis came up to the Supreme Court. Um, I thank you both for writing this book, for bringing this to my attention. Professor Eric Nielsen, thanks for coming here. Thank Professor you. Uh, Andrea Dennis, thanks for coming thank from you. up from Georgia yes, and yes. being here today. The book, again, is Rap on Trial, Race, Lyrics, and Guilt in America. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So to Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We take email feedback at so to speak at thefire.org. We also take questions for future shows if you have one at 215-315-0100. Again, every episode I ask you to review us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. They help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.